My name is Andre Gonoala. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. And this is the latest edition of What in the World. So, as you might have noticed, like, you know, over the past couple of weeks, we often talk about all these different issues in national security and foreign policy. We talk about, you know, some protests in India, uh, coup attempts in Thailand, civil wars in Ethiopia, and then, of course, like, what's happening in our own country. But given the events of yesterday, and we are recording this on Thursday, there is nothing else to talk about than the assault on the U.S. Capitol yesterday. And we are going to dig into it. We're going to try to understand what happened, how it happened, what are the many multifaceted implications of this assault, and so on. And just a disclaimer, uh, our goal with this podcast is we are we always strive to be apolitical because issues of national security and foreign policy should be apolitical. But what in the world happened yesterday? I think many of us are asking how this happened, how this came to be, and so on. So, I mean, Ryan, <laughs> where do we even begin? And we also have Javed Ali, who's joining us, our executive producer, former senior director of counterterrorism, and... I guess Ryan and Javed, like, how how do we even begin to assess the just the terrible events of yesterday? I'm I'm gonna kick it over to Javed to get his kind of first take. I mean, he of course has lived and worked in D.C. Uh, for many many years now. You know, resides in Michigan. But but Javed, I'm a newcomer to D.C., so I'd love to get your initial thoughts. Yeah, thanks, guys. Always great to to be joining you. It seems like I'm I'm a more regular sort of uh, semi guest on on these shows lately. But I, I think speaks to the some of the sort of dynamic state of play and things going on in the world and at home, Andre, as you alluded to, um, and the title for this uh, sort of series you've got going on is completely apropos for trying to figure out what the heck happened yesterday. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot more questions than there are answers, um, but the way I've tried to think about it, even with the last 24 hours kind of reflection, and I've given a number of interviews already, is sort of breaking things down at you know, multiple levels to try to examine, you know, sort of the issues. and. Certainly at the strategic level, I think what happened yesterday did not occur in a vacuum. There were a number of sort of key drivers that um, sort of let an event like yesterday happen. And so the way I've tried to explain that in other media interviews is sort of sort of assessing the role of four different factors. And I, I won't get into all the detail here. I'll just kind of lay them out and then we can maybe springboard off of that. But the first is the impact of COVID over the past year and all the sort of um, impositions and restrictions that's uh, that's uh, had on people's lives and their economic freedom, um, personal freedom and economic opportunity. So I think that's been a big driver. The second major point um, is the deeply polarized state of the country, both at a political level and socially and, and culturally. Um, that clearly was a phenomenon that was, was happening well before the last year, but I think that divide has only gotten worse. It started, if you think about sort of Jan where we were January 2020, with um, all the attention and news on uh, President Trump's, um, you know, the hearings for uh, his impeachment, and and then since then, you know, those divides have only gotten um, more accentuated with the social justice movements for the summer, and then the 2020 elections, and so again, we are highly, highly polarized country, probably unlike any time in, in the nation's history. Third big factor is um, 
this really acute level of fake news and propaganda and misinformation. And I don't even know what to call it other than these, you know, individual terms. Um, but that seems to be way more pronounced in 2020. But I think one of the key shifts in that um, is that unlike 2016 or even years past, where we saw foreign adversaries trying to kind of weaponize these different sort of tools, again, fake news, propaganda, misinformation, uh, to so to achieve the same effects in you know, political discord and social divisions, and that's something that we, you know, Russia was able to do at some level in 2016. The paradigm shifted now in 2020 and into 21. It's um, much more of a of a U.S. domestic based kind of phenomena, and it's not just contained into one corner with you know conspiracy theorists, you know, the info wars of the world. It this has become mainstream. It is being these ideas and narratives are being championed and promoted by elected officials at the federal level, state and local level, and then directly inside the White House up to the present. So that is something very different uh, in 2020 and now into 2021. And then the fourth is the role of social media and you know, the tech companies' um, you know, challenges with getting that kind of content off their platforms, much the same way they had to struggle with this in the 2010s with the rise of ISIS-related propaganda and material. And so I think if you looked at any one of those factors in and of themselves, you could make an argument that they were key. But I think that it's the combination of these four and others that have brought us to where we, we are than an event like yesterday, which did not surprise me, and at least but highly disturbing, but didn't surprise me that it happened. Right. I mean, it seems almost like we, we were completely unprepared. Or at least the, the Capitol Police were unprepared. The city of D.C. might have been unprepared. That's the most staggering part is we've seen protest movements um, around the country, but also in, in D.C. Uh, for you know, the past six months, probably almost a year. Uh, and there's been different levels of response, but it, it is staggering the, the lack of response or the lack of readiness uh, for the, just the mass scale of people that were in D.C., you know, whether or not they're going to be violent or not, whether or not they're going to try to you know, overtake the Capitol, I mean, who knows? I should have been prepared, right? That, that is the, the major issue. And so, Javed, what, it, what were the kind of the failures that you saw? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So again, um, you know, what I've tried to do with these different interviews I've given is not only look at things at you know, the strategic level, and I just talked about some of those factors that sort of operationally, like what didn't happen operationally that could have, um, you know, if a different set of protocols or measures were in place, could have prevented, you know, the, at least the scale of, of what happened. I'm not sure what, you know, there would have been an ability to stop it completely. But, but operationally, you know, from my own experience, um, you know, one of the things that seemed to be, there was some kind of either uh, a gap or a vulnerability or a breakdown or it just didn't happen at all. And again, I don't think we know the answers yet, um, is, you know, what was the, the level of um, either intelligence or information about the uh, so the event yesterday was there sort of um, more sort of concrete indicators of what was going to transpire yesterday um, out there, and if so, where were those indicators? Were they openly being posted on social media accounts that weren't sort of protected, or you know these these weren't you know private Telegram or WhatsApp? Uh, chats, you know, people just openly posting this stuff on whatever platforms. And there are some articles coming out to suggest that that's indeed the case. So there, from my own sort of background in the world of intelligence and analysis, it seems like there, there's the potential to, to sort of 
look at this in hindsight and say there were some clues that were obvious that were missed. And if that's the case, then why did that happen? Was there not an intelligence cell that was part of the planning effort that was had, was in motion in the in the run up to this event? Because you had the vice president there, you had all the the key um, leadership of Congress and then you know, different members and, and staff. So people knew this event was going to happen, right? And so there was a deliberate planning process to go into effect. But why the sort of threat indicators were missed? That is one of these operational questions that I don't think we know the answers to yet. And then um, related to that, if the clues were out there or uh, that information or intelligence was being sort of assessed, in addition to all these other pieces of the of the sort of protection plan um, or safety plan, then why weren't there more either law enforcement uh, officers um, at the Capitol complex? Why wasn't the National Guard perhaps kind of mobilized not to be sort of inner perimeter security, but outer perimeter just as like a, as a shield against, you know, the thousands of people who then descended on the complex. And I'm not suggesting that there would have, you know, there would have been the need for, you know, more aggressive response, but just again, by the, showing up in, in numbers and, and showing up in mass um, could either have a deterrent effect or just a physical, you know, blocking effect of, of preventing people from coming in. Um, and so that, again, that appears not to have happened. And then sort of the third level of analysis sort of tactically. So, so once the perimeter was breached, and again, whether there are the right amount of officers and, and um, National Guard there or not, then you know, what were the immediate tactical priorities? Was it to um, get all the members and staff to safety? Was it to secure all the entry points that were being overrun? Um, and was sort of arresting people for committing crimes. Because once people walked into that, into the Capitol complex unannounced and by force, um, they had committed a federal crime, right? That is, that is a legal thing to do. But very few people were arrested on, on seeing it. And is that because these other priorities that I just talked about um, were considered you know, more important in, in the sort of heat of battle or in the fog of war? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard for me to criticize, you know, tactical decisions being made because I can't even imagine how complex um, that scenario must have been. But again, I think that's as, as sort of more examination comes out, we're going to probably see that there were sort of missteps made, you know, at different phases uh, along the way, strategically, operationally, and perhaps even tactically. But the one thing I am thankful for is that there was not any further loss of life this could have this had the potential to be very violent and very lethal um and thankfully it wasn't but that doesn't mean the next time this happens and there will be a next time i'm convinced of that may not be you know the same kind of playbook in, in washington in the capitol building but there will be another public building that's been stored that will be stormed because it's happened here in michigan last spring and now it's happened in the capitol in dc um that uh it could turn even more violent the next time so there's so many things to think about and consider um so hopefully we can we can have a good discussion about all those different issues yeah certainly and i mean like i mean i guess like something that a lot of people in political circles and in social circles have been talking about i guess is like you know comparing the response yesterday to the response to a lot of the uh, the protests against police brutality some of which you know resulted in riots and like, you know, the deployment of National Guard and stuff. And like, you know, I'm not even going to find any knowledge of like knowing what exactly was going on in the mains of, you know, the National Guard and like our law enforcement who was there yesterday. Right. 
but certainly I think we're going to be learning a lot more about, you know, what exactly transpired and so on having to do with that, right? Because, I mean, there are so many questions and, you know, what happened yesterday with the Capitol sort of makes Nick Cage's national treasure <laughs> seem like it's easier to do than you would expect, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just crazy to think that the Capitol was just so easily overrun and overrun for the first time since the war of 1812, right? When the British essentially burnt DC to the ground. But uh, I think, I mean, among the four points that you had made earlier, we're, we're looking at social media, right? Twitter and Facebook. Well, Facebook has indefinitely banned the president from using the platform. Twitter has banned him for 12 hours, perhaps even longer. Uh, and, you know, you're finally sort of seeing these social media companies, I guess, do more significant action against a president who has been a purveyor of some of this fake news and a lot of this fake news and misinformation. So what what do you think about this? Like, let's dig deeper into the social media question. Ryan, Javed, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's I, personally, it's, it's about time that a bit more strict action to just at least limit some of the things that are being said, right? I mean, we, we saw all throughout the election um, misinformation about what was going on. And I mean, that, and at least to me, led to all of this, right? This is a culmination of fake news that has driven a contingent of, of Americans to take the action that we saw yesterday, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's very linked. And so, and it, it all starts with the social media companies, right? Because this is where this information is being uh, created and also, you know, so easily transmitted to, to fringe groups, to people with uh, these extremist ideologies. Uh, and so it's, it's nice to see that at least actions being taken, um, but I, I, it's not going to solve anything, right? I mean, there are other avenues through which these ideas, ideologies, these individuals can congregate um, virtually. And so it's a step in the right direction, but it's a limited fix. And so there are these broader kind of social issues that need to be resolved. I mean, we had this whole issue of Section 230, which we've talked about. That's a fully separate issue. Um, but but I'm, I'm glad to see that at least there's an attempt being made to kind of clamp down on uh, this rhetoric and this information that is actually leading to, to violence. Yeah. And I, I mean, with social media, I mean, like I've been able to do on, in, like a little side thing I have going on, like I've been able to do like a lot of research on sort of like what messages on Twitter, for example, are the most effective. And time and time and time again, when you look at, for example, policy-based criticism stemming from like accounts like Donald Trump or other populist leaders, and you compare it to like personal-based attacks, insults, and so on, insults always win the day in terms of virality, retweets, and favorites. So, you know, President Trump's Twitter, for example, he has what, maybe 80 million followers. His messages aren't just going to those 80 million followers because those 80 million might be retweeting those messages, disseminating them further and further and further. And, you know, as Javid said earlier, like, you know, when you have this misinformation being disseminated from the top, it just becomes an alternate reality to these segments of the population. It becomes fact. Like, and I mean, for, I mean, for example, like you're going to see a lot of this stuff happen with COVID-19, with the vaccine drive and so on. But, you know, when 
it just becomes fact that the election was quote unquote fraudulent uh, for some. Uh, it's it's their own reality, right? And this reality is being perpetuated in echo chambers on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. And I I think I frankly think yesterday was a culmination of one of these things, right? A culmination of this echo chamber in the worst possible form. Yeah, um, both Andre, you and Ryan use the word culmination, and I myself uh, started to use that word in some of these other interviews I've given, and then I stopped because if you think about it, culmination implies some finality right like you've got a series of factors that drive um to an event and there's like a terminus for that event the way i'm looking at this and and i could be completely wrong but again the way i'm looking at it is that there are these factors fueling this broader sort of phenomena that we're struggling to to meet or this broader threat um but these events will continue to occur right so culmination may not even be the right word right it's just more the activation or the manifestation but i don't think we've seen the last of these and coming back to the social media part um and this is another one of these damned if you do damned if you don't this is the you know the the struggle that the social media companies had five six years ago on the counterterrorism side with isis propaganda is that you know they scaled up to to remove that content with accounts and and um uh and, and the material itself and um you know sort of what's played playing what we would call in the counterterrorism world, it's kind of the whack-a-mole um game right you know you're shutting down one and 10 others would would pop up but still um they they did once they scaled up and not only used human beings but in the combination of you know human beings who were targeting the right sort of messages to take down and then artificial intelligence to to widely you know, cast the net more widely, then a lot more of the content and a lot more of the, the accounts were closed. Content was removed and the accounts were closed. I think the, at least the mainstream social media companies are facing that same economies of scale sort of issue now with it comes to you know, domestic-based misinformation and disinformation um, as opposed to the foreign-based um vectors and it's going to take them some period of time to to ramp up and uh, and in the meantime there's just going to be you know more of this that the percolates but you've also already seen the shift of you know um some of these ideas and narratives and you know these organic kind of self-generated groups that come together in the echo chambers that both of you mentioned um they're not necessarily uh promoting themselves on the mainstream platforms anymore they've if, if you read some of the, the really good um, reporting and analysis that's out there, some of this has now migrated already to platforms like Hawker and Gab and Parler, um, in addition to the Reddits and the you know, 4chans, 8chans of the world and others, um, that they have a completely different business model than the mainstream platforms. They, I have to imagine they don't have a board of directors or breathing down their necks. They don't have corporate shareholders who are concerned about their financial bottom lines or the brands that they're promoting. Um, they may or may not have their own terms of service that they uphold. So the business model for these other platforms is so different. And it's good. I think it's going to make it more viable for, again, this fake news, misinformation, disinformation sort of material to live and thrive in in that world so fine so twitter locks president trump's account for 12 hours and facebook has um sort of banned him for two weeks i think that's the latest state of play indefinitely oh is it okay is it indefinitely now um definitely yeah he'll, he'll find another megaphone and 
he'll probably have 80 plus million followers on that. So again, it's, it's a constant sort of game of offense and, and defense um, when it comes to this. And there will be other voices in addition to President Trump's too, right? And there'll be either another you know, populist politician who, who kind of looked at the Trump playbook and tries to use that or, or somebody else. So that's why I'm very pessimistic for the future in the sense of, you know, this, this world in which we're living now, it is not going to get better anytime soon. I'm not suggesting it's, you know, a catastrophe or, you know, it's the apocalypse, but I think we should be a little more clear-headed about, you know, the road ahead and how long it's going to take to get to, you know, a much better place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all these domestic implications that we've been talking about, uh, but when we're looking internationally, right, I mean, I was on Twitter all yesterday looking at the responses by our allies and our adversaries. Our allies, of course, are expressing their uh, extreme concern with the events that are happening. And then our adversaries, such as Russia, is calling our, our system archaic, is saying that we, you know, we don't meet the modern democratic standards of the world, which is laughable coming from Russia. But still, we're, we're seeing Russia, China, Turkey criticize the United States, which at this moment, it deserves criticism. But it's, 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 it's hurting the legitimacy of one of the best parts of America, and that is us as a, a model for democracy and human rights and all these values that we hold dear. Um, because at the end of the day, right, I mean, that is, that's something that's so valuable to many of these countries that struggle with democracy is, is that, you know, they look to the United States in order to kind of help them achieve it. And, and you know, before, and I mean, like, the United States, it prides itself on the peaceful transfer of power, you know, happening, right? Like, every four years, every eight years, we talk about the peaceful transfer of power. I was uh, reading on Twitter, someone in Australia was saying, we don't talk about the peaceful transfer of power, because it's just so like normal right like why do we need to talk about it but in the united states we keep on talking about it yet this transfer of power has been anything but peaceful i think it's been anything but peaceful and ryan as he said i mean this really i guess shakes the like it could perhaps shake the confidence of many of our allies i mean like we saw boris johnson come out pretty early uh condemning the condemning the attacks condemning the assault on the capital he again reiterated those uh, condemnations even narendra modi from india the Euro the european unions like i think foreign leaders and then venezuela out of all places uh you know saying perhaps that the democracy that america has tried to export has resulted in this right and i mean it I, it's just such a a stain on the ability of america on the ability of america to i think conduct its foreign policy and i mean i don't know javid what are your thoughts well i think every everything that you guys said um is is accurate and that i think shows the the challenge in front of the biden administration and um, you know, all the key folks who are going to occupy positions as Secretary of State and uh, Defense and all the other national security positions, national security advisor, like they're going to have to hit the ground running on January 20th or 21st to repair a lot of damage. I don't think the damage is irreparable, but I do think there's a lot of shattered glass. And and so we're going to sweep up the mess and get back to, you know, kind of the 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 normal sort of way America conducts its foreign policy 
So I think that's that's the challenge, and there's going to have to be a lot of hard work uh, over the next few years um, to again to get us back to where we used to be. But I, I I'm confident that they will at least give it that. You know, the Biden team will at least give it that effort. Whether they deliver the result, will will uh, you know that remains to be seen. And now we have the question of really, I think the next. 12 days from the taping of this uh, of this podcast, right? Like we're starting to see some mass resignations. We saw the deputy national security advisor resign. There were murmurs and rumors of the national security advisor, Robert O'Brien resigning, but uh, we don't really know what that's going to be. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. But we've also started seeing calls for a second impeachment, calls for the 25th Amendment to be invoked. Uh, just before we were taping, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi joined with Senate, uh, now I guess Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, whether or not the Congress has been sworn in, the two senators have sworn in, uh, calling basically for an impeachment or the 25th Amendment to be invoked. Uh, Ryan, I think you know a bit about... I guess some of the weird laws that have been put in place with the 25th Amendment, because right now some of our cabinet secretaries are in an acting capacity. Uh, one, do you think this 25th Amendment talk is going to be like serious? Like, do you think it's actually going to happen or do you think attempts are going to happen? And if so, is it really viable? Well, I am I am just a law student and a nerdy one at that. So take <laughs> you as you will. But let's let's start with the 25th Amendment. I don't see it as being something that is likely to be invoked. But if the vice president and a majority of the uh, executive department heads were to uh, come together and submit to uh, the president pro tempore of the Senate and Speaker of the House, a quote unquote written declaration that the president is unable to discharge his powers and duties, uh, then the president can be removed. However, the president uh, can say that he is able to discharge his duties, and then uh, he remains in power unless within four days, the VP and a majority of these principal officers transmit another declaration saying he's unable to discharge. So there's a lot of qualifications there. Um, and at least to me, I mean, I, I don't see a majority of these secretaries, department heads, uh, taking this action, right? If there's one thing that the president has done, it has installed loyalists. Uh, across the cabinet. And another big question that is yet to be answered is what happens with acting secretaries, right? We have three acting secretaries right now. We're about to have four acting secretaries after Secretary Chow uh, resigns. Uh, and so it's an open question, right? One that uh, we don't know what will happen. So I, I really don't think the 25th Amendment is likely to remove the president from office. Now, of course, we have impeachment. Uh, we've been there once before. Uh, the House can certainly take the steps to impeach the president, and then actually convicting the president in the Senate's trial is another story that requires a two-thirds majority of the Senate. Even with the uproar um, and the rightful uproar of that, given yesterday's events, I, I still don't see it as, as being that likely, right? So, I mean, uh, I, I think the most likely case is that we have President Trump as president for the next 12 days. As difficult as it is for me to say that, uh, that is my my assessment right now. Yeah, and I am uh, by no means qualified to, to comment on anything legally, even though I have a law degree. I think Ryan, your state of legal analysis is well well sharper than mine. Um, but so I'll punt on that one. But on the question of the resignations, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, timing is a bit 
odd, you know, two weeks to go. If people felt that strongly about kind of President Trump's uh, management of government or some of the policy choices, should have resigned. You can make the case they should have resigned earlier. Like, what what was the straw that broke the camel's back yesterday versus everything else uh, over the past uh, few years? Um, I know Matt Pottinger. I don't know him well, but I, he was at the NSC when I was there. I mean, Matt's um, stayed for the whole time, which in and of itself is our Herculean, you know, commitment to public service to to be um, there for four years. But yeah, Matt apparently finally had enough. Um, and uh, whether Ryan uh, also uh, does the same, we're not sure. Uh, so we'll you know, kind of just see how it plays out. I- I'm a little more hopeful, though, that between now and January 20th, that um, we won't see anything more dramatic than what happened yesterday. I mean, there's you know people talking about invoking the 25th Amendment to make sure Trump doesn't have his, you know, finger on the nuclear button proverbially or even actually um but uh yeah i think hopefully um we'll just be able to get through the next 12 days with you know some some um probably some drama but nothing to the scale of some of the worst case scenarios that people are uh suggesting could happen and like with this talk of the 25th amendment i mean like i think one instance that at least highlighted it for some journalists and so on and talking heads of course was that the, the deployment of the National Guard, right? I, there was some reporting saying that the National Guard, like they had tried to get the president to deploy it. The president was very eager to deploy it or in over the summer when we saw the protests and the riots for like racial justice and against police brutality, but he was not so keen on deploying it yesterday, right? And we heard that the vice president was the one who had perhaps been trying to get the National Guard out there ASAP. And I think we saw a statement from Chris Miller, who's the acting secretary of defense, saying, you know, he has spoken with the vice president, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and then the Senate majority and minority leaders about the National Guard. And that's when they took the decision to deploy. Right. But the fact that the president was out of the loop after having been someone who wanted to deploy the National Guard so often during the summer, I think is just very interesting in and of itself. Well, the the National Guard issue is... And when it comes to presidential level sort of authorizations uh, or secretary of defense level authorizations only applies to the D.C. National Guard and all other circumstances, National Guard um, forces are uh, authorized and deployed at the discretion of the state governors because they're citizen shoulders, citizen soldiers. They're not active duty um, soldiers attached to, to regular uh, military uh, Unit. So, so that's what makes the activation and deployment of the D.C. National Guard so different than all the other ones with the, the National Guard or all the other National Guard elements is because uh, just because of the unique nature of the D.C. sort of government structure that for whatever reason um, that, uh, you know, that the approval was was given to either the secretary of defense or the, the president. Um, for the final final say, so that you know adds just a, a lot more sort of complexity and intrigue around their use, um, and it'll be fascinating to see you know the the story once it comes out about you know the debates on uh, how early was the decision being contemplated, who you know which way was the decision going to go before President Trump kind of weighed in, and how much. You know, leverage did it take to actually get the the guard, um, the DC guard, out at the Capitol 
yesterday, because I, I believe by the afternoon, the, the entire DC Guard was deployed there, right? So almost 1,100 uh, 1100 folks. But uh, yeah, that's just another interesting chapter of the, of the recent days. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions and there's a lot to kind of learn as uh, we kind of investigate this further. Um, but let's, let's leave it there. I mean, we could talk for, you know, another half an hour, um, but I think that was, that was plenty for now. Um, Javed, thanks for joining us on this week's What in the World. We really do appreciate your, your insights and analyses. Uh, and for everyone listening, um, you know, make sure to, to keep up with our weekly episodes. We have a great episode coming out Monday with Ian Bremer, uh, where we will, again, probably talk about uh, the events that occurred uh, on Wednesday at the Capitol, because um, their top risk, of course, is uh, 46, that being the 46th president of the United States. Uh, and so, yeah, stay tuned. Follow us on social media uh, at Burnbag Pod to get the latest updates. Thank you, uh, to everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been What in the World.